and welcome to episode 17 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, coming in from Columbus, Ohio. I'm going to be continuing my talk on the early years of Alfred Hitchcock, and again, with this set of episodes, we're only going to go up to about 1950, 1951 or so. As far as the years after that, I'm looking to cover those probably sometime either this year or next year, probably early next year. But I will get to that. I just wanted to break this up so there's not as much of, you know, Alfred Hitchcock in a row. I don't think anyone wants to listen to 10. I mean, I'm sure there are people, (laughs) but I don't think most people want to listen to 10 Alfred Hitchcock episodes in a row, especially when a lot of these early ones aren't even horror. They're more like thriller espionage type stuff. And speaking of, all three of the films that I'm going to be talking about tonight in depth are those more of like espionage political type thrillers. And really, we're getting into this section where Hitchcock would have his career kick-started, where he gets it revived after kind of meandering after the silent era, but we'll, we'll get into all of that. So, without further ado, Let's go ahead and open up those books to chapter 5, page 2, and we'll continue on with Alfred Hitchcock. So one thing I want to unpack about blackmail that I forgot from the last episode. Apparently the movie didn't do well in foreign markets. I think I said it was successful, and it was domestically. But supposedly Americans said they couldn't understand the English accents. And that drives me nuts. But, I mean, you could see early on when you're not having as much access to films, you know, films are silent for the longest time, so it doesn't matter what language they're in because you're going to get title cards in your language. You're not going to get these accents going on. So I can see a little bit where you're going into that age, you're going into this new age of sound, and you say you can't understand an English accent. But (laughs) whatever. I think we still get some of that today where people say they have a hard time understanding some of these English or Irish movies, and I don't personally, but I think these people back back in the 1930s felt your pain. But yeah, due to this, the profits from that film were pretty modest, and that is, to give a recap, that's where we left off. You know, this was, Blackmail was Hitchcock's very first talkie. It was the very first film with sound that he did, anyway. And it was kind of also, it also had a silent version. So there was one of each. That's where we left off. Hitchcock had had his silent career and he he released Blackmail and was ready to get into more of Pictures with Sound. So after Blackmail, Alfred was open to filming whatever management thought was feasible next because he understood the company needed to make money too and his last film didn't exactly light the world on fire internationally at least, to clarify again. He met with Sean O. Casey about adapting his play Juno and the Paycock. Casey soon realized after a short time that Alma was going to be the one making the final decisions, which was in line with pretty much everything we know about the couple up to this point. I think he was sitting there when they had met with him in his living room, I believe, and, you know, he, he was saying, Alma's just sitting there listening intently to every word he's saying, while Hitchcock's this kind of bumbling man who looks like he's he struggles with every movement. So, OKC okay, so picked up on that pretty quick. 
Now, Juno and the Paycock would be Hitchcock's first film conceived as a talkie from start to finish. And it would, in fact, feature a ton of dialogue when compared to blackmail. Hitchcock's version remained very faithful to the original, with the exception of some extra scenes added in to showcase the sound. The scene that they're mainly talking about is where a family is singing along with a phonograph inside their house, while a funeral procession passed outside their window, which was followed by a spray of machine gun fire. So it's kind of these secession of one thing after another with some background sound going on. To produce these effects, it took a lot of effort and kind of thinking outside the box for the time. For the phonograph, a sound guy held his nose and sang the song to reproduce that tinny sound that a phonograph would produce, while the family sang along with him. And then on another set, they had the funeral procession, and the actors, you know, sang to complete their part, and at the same time, they had stagehands pounding with canes on tin to replicate the machine gun fire. So all that has to go on at once. This isn't something where we kind of take for granted what we have with sound today, because you can go in and put in the sound effects later, essentially, if you need to. Or it's much easier to do sound. I mean, you think about the Italian films when they're doing all that dubbing. They're doing everything after the fact anyway. You know, you could pre-record some stuff. You could record stuff here and there. You could stitch it together, things like that. That wasn't possible back then. The only thing they could do, they had to do everything in real time. They had to do it all at once, and all these sounds had to be done at once. You couldn't do one and then another. So they really did have to get creative with this. Juno and the Paycock is set during the Irish Civil War, and the studio was hoping international audiences would respond better to Irish accents than they did English accents. It was a success, but many believe it had nothing to do with Hitchcock's direction. The writer and actors were the ones to be praised this time around. Hitchcock was said to feel ashamed when asked about this movie by any of the praise that the film got because he felt he wasn't the one responsible. However, he never did disavow it like he did a lot of his other early efforts. He just didn't think he especially contributed a lot to the film or the film's success. The success of Juno and the Paycock would lead to Alfred being assigned to novel or stage play adaptations for his next four films. After Juno and the Paycock, he began work on the detective thriller film Murder. I know we like to make fun of film names today, but... Murder's nothing that really, you know, gets you excited or kind of drives the hype behind that. That's just very bland, very on the nose, I guess. Um, But in it, um, an actress is accused of murdering a female colleague. However, a juror disagrees and hunts down the real murderer. One early scene shows a man monologuing in front of a mirror. This was the first example of a soliloquy in any British film ever. So, we've had these touch points where Hitchcock has done a lot of firsts. Now, he was not the first to do sound, as we discussed last episode, but he was the first to shoot that, you know, that man going down an escalator scene. Or he was, you know, he was holding the camera still and in one position for longer than others. He would do techniques a little later where he was on the cutting edge of switching the camera as another character talked. Before the character's done talking, switching to the other character. 
So Hitchcock seemingly is always throwing these what were considered avant-garde at the time, and now it's just, you know, good filmmaking. Continuing down this path of stage play and novel adaptations, in the fall of 1930, after Murder was done, Hitchcock began talks with playwright John Goldsworthy for his play The Skin Game. Hitchcock made it very clear that he didn't want any improvising from the actors this time around, like he had allowed it in a lot of his other films. Instead, he wanted everyone going by the book and doing ex- the exact gestures that Hitchcock wanted them to do. It took three months to film this, and it was released in January of 1931. It would be a success with critics and the public alike. So, even though Hitchcock's not doing anything special with this run of films, it seems like they are hitting the target audience. And that's what we talked about when he had moved into this studio in the first place, is that you know he was going there because of the financial stability and the better equipment and facilities and that with the with him knowing full well that they were looking to put out low risk investments that would almost certainly produce payouts. But they weren't going to take losses on films. We'll find what happened with that a little later on. After he was all wrapped up with the skit game adaptation, Hitchcock and his family would take a cruise to some exotic locations, and it was on board that Hitch's next film would be conceived. Rich and Strange is the story of a middle-class English couple who run into trouble on their travels. They leave London, they leave their comfortable London setting for the Orient, and tension grows between them during the travel. They're only brought back together through a series of unfortunate events that happen on the rest of the journey. It's said that Hitchcock took a lot of inspiration from that trip. You know, there might have been some things coinciding with what was going on on film and what he had experienced. Maybe a little more fantastical, of course. But this was a pretty true-to-life and an original film. A lot of the film is silent, as it was shot in location where they couldn't record sound very easily. You think, you know, they're going to these, it's not like today where you can just pick up everything and move. We talked about with blackmail, a lot of that equipment is cumbersome, and you need a lot to kind of make sure you're not getting any background noises, you need to make sure you're getting all the sound you need all at once, no pre-recording, anything like that. So yeah, when they're going and shooting on location to different parts of the world, you're not going to be able to just pick up your sound equipment and go. I could see that maybe being a detractor for this film. Maybe audiences at the time, it wasn't such a big deal because they had just gotten off of silent films not too long ago. But today's standard, you know, learning that it has so many silent sequences of just these exotic locations and the plot in general, I really don't have much interest in visiting this one, which I don't think I have much interest in visiting a lot of these in-between blackmail and when we will get to his next set of successes. Like The film was not received well, so apparently audiences at the time didn't like it either. But Hitchcock did defend it to this day, saying it had a lot of ideas. So you can tell, I think, I think that stems from this being a pet project for Hitchcock, right? He's been doing these book and stage play adaptations, 
And this is finally something he conceived on his own. He got the idea and expanded upon it. And he's put all this effort into it, and it's kind of his baby, and the public just doesn't like it. So it's very hard for Hitchcock to produce original stuff now. And we'll definitely get into that. I think this goes throughout his career, but there's going to be some interesting talking points later on that will back up this. After the mess of a film that was rich and strange, Hitchcock's relationship with British International Pictures was becoming strained. Due to this, Alfred went out and created Hitchcock and Baker Productions so that he wouldn't have to rely on British International Pictures for publicity. He wanted to make sure his name was the one marketed. He was trying to prove that a name could very well carry a movie. He would even frequently try to use his weight as a publicity piece to make himself stand out even more. Going so far as to take interviews in pajamas to make him appear larger than he looked in normal clothes. You see this all the time. I mean, how many of those Hitchcock releases or we've seen pictures of Hitchcock standing um, next to a silhouette or he has a silhouette on these home video releases. He was trying to use that to stand out and separate himself from the others. He was already known as a great director. This would help people. Maybe they, it helped him identify with him because he was a bigger man. I don't know, but either way, this is next-level stuff from Hitchcock going out and trying to protect his image and really trying to sell himself and bet on himself with this. He didn't want to rely on a studio ever again to do the publicity. And you can see that today, like why so many films come out with these lackluster trailers or terrible marketing campaigns. And you can see why Hitchcock wanted to control what was coming out and what was being said about him and how his stuff was marketed. I think this is a very smart move, and it shows how shrewd that Hitchcock and probably Alma as well were in this decision. Take a step back here. Um, While he was editing Rich and Strange, he was asked to direct what was referred to as a quota quickie. Now, quota quickies, let's go into these for a minute. So we had that The Films Act of 1927 that we talked about last episode, which was, you know, there needs to be so many, I think it's one-fifth of all films coming out of Britain, needed to be, you know, domestic productions. So, these quota quickies at the time were designed to make sure they met the standard. Um, They met that number that they needed to meet. These were usually quickly thrown together. And their sole purpose was to meet a quota. So nothing special here, nothing new. This is kind of that, how far have we fallen? Because Hitchcock was being heralded as a genius only, what, this is 1931, 32. few years ago, three years ago, he was being heralded as a genius. uh, Three, four, five years ago. And now he's doing a quota quickie. And this wouldn't be the last one that he did. So, (laughs) it's pretty crazy to think how Hitchcock struggled. But you have to think not everyone's going to catch fire. I think the early days of film are paved with just sad stories of failure and kind of having to claw and scrape your way up. Even though Hitchcock was seen for his genius at the time and heralded as so, it still took a long time for him to build himself to the director he wanted to be, where we're seeing a lot of filler stuff in between here. 
when we're getting into the next couple episodes, we're not going to see as much of this filler going around, and we're going to see some big changes for Hitchcock. But it took a while. I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure the transition from being a great silent film director to being a great sound film director, Hitchcock did both, remember. I don't think there's a whole lot of iconic or well-known directors who were big in silent films and who also did really good sound films. So, while he did make his name in the silent films, and he was getting praise left and right, yeah, you could see where that transition period might be a little iffy. And again, he's getting a lot of direction from the studio on where to go. They're like, we tried your stuff. It didn't necessarily work as we wanted to. You're going to stick to this path. You're going to put us out films that are going to make money. Either way, I think we just sometimes take for granted that some of these big names just kind of pop and jump into the mainstream and are able to make success. And that's not always true. I mean, I'm not saying that it's necessarily completely easy for someone like John Carpenter. I mean, it's not like he just had his pick of anything he wanted to do in the 80s. A lot of the times we don't realize how good films are until after the fact. I don't necessarily think Hitchcock falls into that category, as a lot of his films were well-regarded but we might have to get a little later on in his career for that to be true. So what does one of the great minds and great directors of all time do when he's given a quota quickie? Well, he wasn't a fan of the film or the script, so instead he decided to turn it into a parody of murder mystery adventure films. And the film was called Seventeen, just simply Seventeen. So that's Hitchcock thinking a little bit outside the box and taking lemons and making them into lemonade, I guess. Unfortunately, that would be a kind of contentious decision. We'll see that here shortly. In 1932, it was reported that Hitchcock was appointed to supervise all of British International Pictures' films shot at the Elstree studio. This would lead to a producer role on another quota quickie. So he wasn't directing this one, he was just producing this one. But you see this as BIP trying to move him out of the director's chair. It's almost like they're pushing him out and he's not wanted as a director anymore. This is fairly early. I mean, this could seem like your career was coming to an end. So Hitchcock's not directing this one, but he is producing. And he uses this opportunity to add more parody and jokes into this film. And a lot of this was assumed to be levied at BIP itself. Okay, so you're on the hot seat, you're getting pressure, what does Hitchcock do? He doesn't sink back into his shell, he goes right for the jugular, and you gotta respect that, but his contract was terminated shortly after. So, that is the end of his tenure at British International Pictures. And I don't know if you would call it the worst period in his film history, I mean, they had him doing, and something that we didn't mention was Elstree Calling that the studio had him do in 1930, and that was essentially like a comedy musical variety show. It was like a whole bunch of vaudeville sketches thrown together in a film. They truly weren't using him as he should have been used, and I get it, companies need to make money, but he didn't have a great tenure at BIP. I would say blackmail is the greatest thing to come out of his BIP tenure. So, Hitchcock is on shaky ground, he's got to move to something else, what's he going to do? He was honestly feeling a little fed up, and feeling like he was in the backwater of cinema being in England. 
he felt that American films were far superior than British ones. He was quoted as saying, In England, there was a lack of people with the ability and skill to think pictorially. He had an agency start floating his name around to American studios and see if there's any interest, you know, cast in a line, see if there's bites. But unfortunately, the entire industry in America was in a bit of a slump, and his Hollywood dreams would have to be put on hold for at least a little longer. While that might be disappointing to some, Hitchcock instead trudged forward and put out his first set of what would probably be considered classic Hitchcock films. When people talk about Hitchcock, yeah, you'll hear about The Lodger from Cinephiles. You probably won't hear about it from many other people. I think when we start to get here in the mid-30s and into the 40s is where he's really starting to put out films that would be remembered by title alone, even if you haven't seen the film or know the man, you probably hear a film title and know it. And we'll start to get into much more recognizable films on the next set of episodes. So Hitchcock still wanted a fresh start. He was released from BIP, and he linked up with Tom Watson, who was an independent producer, to direct Waltzes from Vienna. And Waltzes from Vienna is another musical comedy, so it's a very strange film for Hitchcock to sign on to. But there might have been a little motive behind it. We don't know if Hitchcock, you know, wanted to stay busy, or if he needed the money, Either way, it's just a little weird. He was frustrated with the film, and usually took it out on the actors. It was said that he was way out of his depth with this kind of movie. He was much more suited to the films that he had been doing before, even if they weren't, you know, great. The musical was just not his bag. He even said on the set, I hate this sort of stuff. Melodrama is the only thing I can do. So, where are we looking for a connection here? Why would Hitchcock take waltzes in Vienna? Why would he take this assignment? He clearly doesn't like this style of film. He clearly didn't want to do it. Well, the movie was filmed at Gaumont British, which was led by our old friend Michael Balkan. And thinking back to last episode, Michael Balkan was the one who had founded Gainsborough Pictures, and Hitchcock was there kind of from the beginning. Maybe he's doing it as a favor to Balkan. Maybe he's doing it to get back in on, you know, on track with Michael Balkan and maybe see what opportunities could come out of it. But either way, he did it. And he didn't know it yet, but Balkan was about to rescue his career. Hitchcock's next film would be The Man Who Knew Too Much. So this is going to be the first movie we're getting in depth to for this episode. Let's get into the background of this before we do anything else. Balkan and Hitchcock discussed working together again, and Hitchcock informed him that he'd been working on an adaptation of a Bulldog Drummond story. Now, Bulldog Drummond is a character who's similar to, like, a James Bond at the time. So he's trying to take this James Bond-type character and put him in this original story. Balkan was immediately interested, and their partnership was renewed. Hitchcock would bring Charles Bennett on to write the film. If Charles Bennett sounds familiar, that's because he was the playwright who had written Blackmail. He wrote the play for that. 
Bennett had recently also been released and cast out and was looking for a new home as well. It only made sense for him and Hitchcock to link up with Balkan, a Gaumont British. Bennett recalled that he and Hitchcock would go to a pub almost every day and talk for the entire afternoon sometimes. A lot of times it wasn't even about the film they were working on, it was just talking in general. Hitch viewed Bennett as the best person to build the framework for the stories that he wanted to tell. It was said that Hitchcock often conceived these film ideas in his mind. He would get these scenes and images and pictures, and this goes back to where he's writing his storyboards to get his view out onto paper and letting the writers know what he's thinking. Hitchcock could then take the framework of the story and incorporate his own ideas and scenes within that framework and kind of rework things how he saw fit. He needed Bennett to connect his scenes together. This was essentially because Hitchcock was not very good at making an entire story or big picture. He was mainly focused on the little things. He was focused on the scenes that he wanted to do, like we were talking about there, and had no real, it was said that he really didn't have the knack for putting together a cohesive story from start to finish. With Bennett, he used him only for the framing of the story, though. He would always bring someone else in to handle the dialogue or to rework the dialogue. Bennett Balkan and the rest of their crew would work with Hitchcock on his next four films, but are often unheralded. In reality, they had a big part to play in the revival of Hitchcock's career and the success of his early thrillers. You know, how many of you before this had heard of Charles Bennett or Michael Balkan? No one really, but without them, Hitchcock is kind of dead in the water with his career. Balkan gave him his start of his career and then took a chance with him again, he took a lot of chances with Hitchcock. He really did. And Bennett, I mean, Bennett's constructing these stories. Hitchcock isn't a typical auteur, especially at this point in his career. He's not out there making his own creative ideas for the most part and putting them on paper. He's taking a lot of inspiration from other sources. He's taking novels or plays and things like that. And he's having a writer rework and kind of put together a story And then Hitchcock is adding his own flair. I think what Hitchcock brings to the table, especially right now, is his interesting techniques and the way of getting characters from here to there. And not to say he wasn't involved in the script, because he definitely would go in and help to rewrite these scripts. Absolutely. I'm just saying he had a lot of help, and it's nice to recognize that the help was there. Initially, Hitchcock was working on a film titled Roadhouse next. But he moved off of that one and decided to move on to the Bulldog Drummond film titled Bulldog Drummond's Baby. The plot was supposed to be centered around international conspiracies and a kidnapped baby. The adaptation fell through, but Hitchcock and Bennett used the bones of that story in The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's very easy to see if you know the plot of that film that we'll set up in a minute, how they reworked a little bit, but I think the basic plot points stayed in place. It's one of those things where, you know, the names and (laughs) the names have been changed to protect the innocents, but the title was taken from a compilation book written by author G.K. Chesterton. However, none of the content from the book actually went into the film. Hitchcock just used the name because they had the rights to it and he liked the way it sounded. 
The film opens up in Switzerland for a short period of time, and when Hitchcock was asked what he knows about the Swiss, he stated, They have milk chocolate, the Alps, dances, and lakes. A very simplified view of the Swiss, but either way, all four of those were incorporated in the film's opening. Now, this film had Peter Lorre, and I think Peter Lorre is a main central figure in the film. He's even put on the poster a lot of the times. He's not the leading man, but he's there. Lorre was coming off of his very first English-language film, you know, in the international versions that were released of M from 1931. M is considered pretty much like a landmark film. It's a very well-regarded movie. But that was the problem, is that Peter Lorre didn't speak very good English, and this was only his second English-language film after he fled from Nazi Germany. All he could really say at this point was yes or no, and in the end, he would have to rely on phonetics to get through the script. To disguise this when he first met Hitchcock, he he was told that Hitchcock liked to tell stories, and he would wait for Hitchcock to seemingly come to the end of a story and would pick up his cue to just laugh. This kind of tricked Hitchcock into thinking Laurie knew English and caused him to get the part. Hitchcock became rather fond of Peter Laurie, probably because he laughed at all of his jokes. But honestly, all that being said, I would say he did pretty well for not knowing English. He's very good in this film. The shootout scene that is happens in the film was based on the Sydney Street Siege, which happened around where Hitchcock lived in 1911. Now, the the shootout scene is not one of my favorites, but Hitchcock is taking what he knew in real life and adding it in. And I think that scene, because it's a really slow-paced kind of unfolding mystery, and yeah, maybe maybe that's put in to add some action to it. I think it... uh, Well, we'll get into that when I talk about the movie. And a couple last notes here is that, well, actually several last notes. The song Storm Clouds Cantata was written by composer Arthur Benjamin, and it is one of the only links between the 1934 version that we're talking about now and its 1956 version starring Jimmy Stort, which I will certainly talk about on, you know, part two of the Alfred Hitchcock whenever we get back to it. But they don't have a whole lot in common. That song is one thing that they do have in common. The budget of this movie was around £40,000 at the time, and the film also introduced what would be Hitchcock's version of the MacGuffin. This term was pretty much popularized by the director, even though it had the idea or the what a MacGuffin was had been used for a long time before this. For reference, a MacGuffin is basically, you know, it's a red herring. It's a plot device or subject that drives the film forward, but ultimately has little or no impact on the audience. So it's something they're chasing after, or someone they're chasing after they think is the suspect, or something like that. Turns out, it's either not what they thought it was, or it really doesn't matter in the terms of the story, it's just there to keep the story moving along. During production, while Balkan was away on a trip, a lot of people at Gaumont British were leery regarding the film, and were planning on shelving it. They hadn't quite seen anything like it before, and they just weren't sure what to do with it. 
Fortunately, Balkan returned just in time and reworked the financial agreement to get the studio to release it. So another hiccup here in Hitchcock's career, this sounds very similar to The Lodger, where they wanted to shelve that movie, and they ended up bringing in um, Montague to come in and fix that film. I wouldn't say, I mean, I'd say this is a pretty well-known, the remake is probably much more known than this one, but this is a pretty landmark Hitchcock film, and again, just like The Lodger, it was, they were thinking about shelving it, but Balkan, he came in and <laughs> reworked the financials, put less burden on the studio, and it's crazy to think that he had to do that. Well, much to their surprise, the movie was a hit when it released in 1934. Hitchcock would later state that the man who knew too much was the real start of his career, and his popularity re-established his creative prestige. It also led to him being typecast as a thriller director, which, you know, for better or worse, I think for better. But he joked that if he made a film adaptation of Cinderella, a skeleton would have to fall out of the coach. Okay, let's go ahead and get into the setup for this before we move into the review. The Man Who Knew Too Much was released in the UK in December of 1934. And the synopsis reads, While vacationing in St. Moritz, a British couple receive a clue to an imminent assassination attempt, only to learn that their young daughter has been kidnapped to keep them quiet. So you can see where that kind of ties into the original Bulldog Drummond's baby, except we substitute the baby for, you know, a little girl. When talking about this movie... I think it starts off pretty slow, and it's kind of confusing. It's kind of jarring about what's going on. I don't necessarily like the opening moments or understand the opening moments that are going on in Switzerland until it gets to a certain point. And then I think once it gets to that certain point, it turns into and settles into a gripping mystery thriller. I like the political intrigue that's thrown into the background, and like just how deep the secret society or conspiracy goes in this movie. There is this, these scenes later on where they're, they're going through this place of worship, and I'll tell you, it's pretty cool what it gets into. I would have liked it to go even a little further, but you have to kind of keep things simple, so I get it. But yeah, that's kind of the driving force. Man and his wife, and mostly the man, he's trying to find his daughter without involving the police. So he's following this clue that he found, and hoping it's going to lead him to his daughter, and he can do it himself without the police getting involved. The problem is, is the assassination attempt behind this is very large on a political scale. They compare it to, you know, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in World War I. So it's that kind of a level of, you know, political interest. And they, they try to plead with him, but he is just too worried that his daughter will, you know, be murdered. He doesn't want his daughter. He wants his daughter to come back to him. From there, we get some really great scenes in what are normally mundane locations. Like I said, a place of worship, a dentist. We get some very interesting scenes as these two men kind of go and search for the little girl. It's also, you know, in that place of worship, there's one of the most ridiculous fights I've ever seen. Let's just say they're not fighting by conventional means, and this borders on comical, which is a theme that would go through 
Hitchcock films for the rest of his career, he has to have a little bit of levity in there. And, you know, he was a famous practical joker, so it makes sense. But he has to have that little bit of levity driving the movie forward along with the suspense and the thrills. Like I said earlier, the shootout plays out much more like an action crime movie. But there is a pretty good moment of suspense in there. So it's not all a waste. I think things kind of get bogged down in the shootout where we were going along on this adventure and journey of this man trying to find his daughter. It kind of gets muddied a little bit. Now, I do like the way um, the film ultimately ends. So I will say that. I think it wraps itself up nicely. It just maybe gets lost a little bit along the way. This is a very simple story, though, given the fact that it's about political espionage. I mean, when you compare it to films like the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spice or things like that about political intrigue, and uh, it's very simple and very easy to comprehend, I guess, on a level, which I can appreciate that. I definitely can. You know, this is more, this is less about the political espionage, and the assassination is the MacGuffin. That is the MacGuffin that is driving this movie forward, if you were wondering. It's more about the parents trying to avoid getting swept up in the intrigue for the sake of their daughter. So that's just a great example we can talk about for a little bit. They're leading, they're on this chase, or there's this great danger overhead looming of this assassination that could start a world war. And all the while, We're focused on the parents and the little girl and them trying to save her. I wouldn't say Laurie shines in this movie, but he definitely is a memorable character. I would say probably there's one scene that I think that sticks out to me now. I mean, there's several scenes that are memorable in this. That's the thing. Yes, this does get bogged down, but there's so many memorable aspects. And Laurie's character is just one of them. Just his image, really. The way he looks. I think he stands out about the above the other characters is what I was going to say before I started thinking of all these kind of wonderful scenes that are going on in the background. But Laurie does have a good character in this movie. I mean, I would say all of the characters are pretty well written, and they all have their little nuances, even if we don't get to dive deep into them. And I'm thinking about it now, the dentist scene I mentioned, there's also a little bit of humor with that, too. So... I think we're going to see that going forward with Hitchcock's sense of humor. One potential negative, depending on how you look at it, is the fast pace at which this thing moves. It has a short runtime, and it doesn't really waste any time getting right into things. And I think that really plays into what I was saying earlier with that opening being confusing. It's just going from beat to beat to beat. You don't really get an introduction to these characters much. You're just kind of thrown into the middle of a story and trying to piece things together and figure it out. Now, you do see the inciting action. It's not like you're just literally thrown into the middle of a story. But, I mean, it's kind of a little hard to follow at first, especially with that fast pace. Now, the fast pace is something that Hitchcock would love to throw in later. And I think we're going to see that as we continue talking about some other movies. One thing of note here is we get a departure from what was, especially talking in Blackmail and The Lodger, we get that departure from what would become later his trademark violence against women. And I think we get that for the most part in these next couple of films. The plots are much more politically driven, 
and their kind of spy-type espionage thrillers, and not with a James Bond character, but with the everyman. But we're not getting those, you know, we're not going to even frenzy level or psycho level of violence against women. Um, That would come later on in his career. At this point, he's focused about things that are, what I'm assuming is being driven by all the things going on in the world at the time. I mean, we're getting to the mid-30s, Hitler's in power, and we're starting to see things ramp up in Europe. So I can absolutely understand why this type of film is there. I mean, this is the pre-war period. You can just imagine that a lot of times there probably are these this espionage and these spies going around and trying to figure things out. And yeah, I can see where that's appealing and why he did a string of these. So to give my final wrap up and my final thoughts on The Man Who Knew Too Much, I think at the end of the day, it's a pretty good movie with a lot of memorable scenes. I don't think it is one of Hitchcock's best, to be sure, but it's it's a really good, memorable movie, I will say that. It's not going to get lost in your memory, I don't think, because of some of the scenes here. There's good and bad in this movie. There's ups and downs. If I was to give a recommendation, it's a must-watch. Most Hitchcock fans have already seen this movie, I'm sure. If you haven't, I think it's a must-watch for Hitchcock fans. And I think it's really a must-watch for thriller fans. I think you'll get enough out of it. Again, you always have to have the caveat, and I'm not going to say it. I'm going to try not to say this again, because really, none of these films in the first section are going to be horror films or straight-ahead horror films, but it's coming more from that thriller aspect. And when I put together you know, my year-end list, thrillers are on there, and I think thrillers can be just as frightening and tense as horror movies. So as long as it's a thriller-type movie, we're going to talk about. Speaking of which, let's transition into the next movie, which is right back-to-back with The Man Who Knew Too Much, and that would be The 39 Steps. The film is loosely based on the novel of the same name by John Bachan. Hitchcock's version is a lot different from the original source, though, as seems to be always the case. He includes new characters, he rewrites what the 39 Steps actually are, and even fixes a major plot hole from the books. Charles Bennett returned to write the original script. Later, though, Ian Hay was the one that was brought in to do rewrites and the dialogue editing. The budget for 39 Steps was a major increase from The Man Who Knew Too Much. And it went from, again, Man Who Knew Too Much was 40,000, and this went to a sizable 60,000 pounds. The main reason was to pay for actors Robert Donat and Madeline Carroll who were already established in America. They were trying to make a hit in the international market and sought to appeal to the American audiences. So they thought, we have established actors who have had experience working in America. Let's try to sell the movie on this. In the movie, Donut and Carol at one point are handcuffed together. And in one of his infamous jokes, Hitchcock actually told him he had lost the key. And it said he did this to you know, make them become acquainted with each other and get that intimate feeling on screen. He wanted it as true to life as possible. In another instance, Carol and Donat were laughing uncontrollably on set and couldn't maintain their composure. It said that Hitchcock walked off stage and smashed a lamp with his fist. After that, the two gave an amazing performance during the next take. 
we're going to see this over and over again, I feel like, of Hitchcock doing some pretty crazy stuff to get the best out of his actors. But that's pretty crazy, punching a lamp with your fist. It's said that, and playing off of that fact, it is said that Hitch was rough on Carol during filming. When he was asked by one interviewer, he compared her to the iceberg that sank the Titanic when speaking of her cool demeanor, and told Denat to be as rough as possible when dragging her through the moors in the film. This wasn't an attack on Carol or anything, rather, he viewed it as a way to bring out her best performance. He thought she was this, you know, cool, collected, prim and proper woman, and he wanted to kind of break her of that and get the the attitude and the performance that he needed. Questionable methods, but it it got the job done, I guess. <laughs> Hitchcock set out to make a fast-paced film. He didn't want the audience to have a chance to breathe. And you can really see this. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is moves along at a breakneck pace. Hitchcock always thought that his films needed to be viewed twice at least. You know, once to be caught up in the intrigue and the twist and everything that's going on, and the second time to really be able to look and see everything, all the little details that he'd put into the films. When speaking about the film, screenwriter Robert Town said it's not much of an exaggeration to say that all contemporary escapist entertainment begins with the 39th Steps. Very interesting quote there, um, essentially saying, you know, if we didn't have the 39 Steps, maybe we wouldn't have something like, you know, a Michael Bay film or, or something to that extent. Saying that, I mean, that's a pretty good compliment to Hitchcock, calling this escape, that it started the escapist entertainment, but I would take his quote more of saying, like, it takes you away from your world into another one, as opposed to what we would call a popcorn flick today. So, the movie was actually a huge success upon release, which was great. And I, th- I think this was his most successful probably since the silent days. So, 39 Steps really had something going for it. So, I'm going to move in. That's about all I have as far as setup. I'm going to go ahead and move in to my mini-review of that one. So, The 39 Steps, and that is the number 39 in the title, released in 1935 and ran for 86 minutes. The synopsis reads, Richard Haney stumbles upon a conspiracy that thrust him into a hectic chase across the Scottish moors, a chase in which he is both the pursuer and the pursued, as well as into an unexpected romance with the cool Pamela. The 39 Steps, it's an interesting movie it starts off with this opening scene that is really weird. And at first you think it's kind of unconnected. The whole thing's unconnected other than... But really, it plays more into the film, this weird opening scene, than you would think. Here we have a situation similar to what we see in several Hitchcock films. That is a normal, everyday person pulled into a world they don't belong in, and clearly they're swept up in something bigger than themselves. That's absolutely what we have here, and you could compare it to something like North by Northwest, or what, I mean, I feel in The Man Who Knew Too Much, it's kind of the same thing, right? Um, It follows our lead character as he attempts to elude police after being framed for a crime he didn't commit. 
Now this opening when he is framed for this crime is very strong. It's one of my absolute favorite parts of the film. That and the, you know, the ensuing chase that goes on for a little bit that ends up in a train car. I really love that part of the film. I would say this one we get even more of that, like, spy and political intrigue stuff here. And, uh, like I said at the beginning, I think it fits with the times. It just fits in with what's going on in the world. Even the, you know, the 39 steps themselves have something to do with this world of spies and intrigue. And I think the whole conspiracy thing and the 39 steps themselves is a really cool aspect that Hitchcock built on here. I also love the way that Donat and Carol interact. It's really something I don't think you saw a whole lot of. Maybe you do. Maybe I just haven't seen the right type of movies. But as far as what I've seen, um, the way they interact with each other I think is pretty interesting, and I like it a lot. It's not just your standard and typical interactions between a man and a woman. In my opinion, it kind of adds an extra layer to the film, and I think it really needed it. So I think it it really helps to elevate and boost the movie. Also, as a note, there are some scenes in the countryside which are just absolutely gorgeous. I don't know where they filmed these, if they filmed these in a studio or wherever they filmed them, but they're great-looking scenes. And, yeah, I think that's really cool when they're kind of trekking across the countryside. And that's another thing, is we do get to get out of the city in this one. We're, you know, more... There, there's definitely some scenes that take place in the city, but we do get to go out in the country a little bit and have that for the setting and get kind of a breath of fresh air, really, going through this. I think the ending is pretty clever, and like I said, it absolutely completes a circle. I don't know. Listen, I was not expecting the ending at all. I think it... It's not going to make or break the film. I think it's that kind of ending. It does deal a lot with a MacGuffin. And, again, if this is supposed to be a mystery film, I don't think it does a good job of kind of giving you clues along the way as to what the plan is. But, that being said, I think The 39 Steps is a really good movie with maybe a little bit of wasted potential. I really love the idea of the 39 steps as a concept and, you know, the actual 39 steps within the film, narratively. And I think they could have made a much better film if they delved deeper into that and kind of expanded on that whole, you know, web of mysteries and intrigue. But that's not what we got, and I'm not here to ding a film for what we didn't get. So. All in all, I think the 39 Steps, so far of the ones we've done, it's definitely in that top tier of Hitchcock films. I think it's better than the others we're talking about on this episode. I think the leads are so likable, and they should be for the the amount they were paid extra to be in this movie. And I think the plot drives you along fast enough. And again, if there's bad parts, it's at that fast speed, so you're not really on those parts for a while. So, if you're a Hitchcock fan, of course The 39 Steps is essential. If you're not, I think it really is a high recommendation to view. More so than the other two that I'll talk about this episode. And, you know, we'll see how that stacks up as I continue to go through these early Hitchcock films. 
it's certainly not going to touch a lot of things in his later filmography, but for the time period and these early kind of mystery spy thrillers, I think it's really good. Okay, so after the 39 Steps, Hitchcock wanted to move on to something more grand, but instead Balkan asked him to direct Secret Agent, which was yet another spy movie. He felt he owed it to Balkan to take the job, so he did. It's set in the Switzerland during World War I. The British agent in the film is tasked with following a German spy, but kills the wrong man. He must then track down the right spy, and from my understanding, that's how the movie plays out. John Gilgood, who was the star of the film, and Hitchcock didn't get along during filming. Gilgood said Hitchcock made him feel uneasy and also paid more attention to Madeline Carroll and Peter Lorre because they enjoyed Hitchcock's practical jokes when he didn't. Gilgood was known for his stage acting and being in plays at the time, but Hitchcock would tell him that his stage acting was no use to him on set, and he might as well try to forget everything he learned and start over. So you can see kind of a contentious relationship developing there. But from all accounts for everything I hear, there's nothing really that memorable in Secret Agent, except maybe some of the drama behind the scenes, so... From what I've heard, it's very forgettable, but I don't want to speak about a movie I haven't seen, so let's move on to one I have. In the summer of 1946, Hitchcock was determined to get back to what he knew. He would leave the Alps and return to the streets of London, and he would get back to that with sabotage. Hitchcock wanted to show as much of the city as possible, and Balkan even bragged in pre-release that sabotage would contain more of London than had ever been seen in a film before, which is pretty exciting, I'm assuming, if you're living in London at the time, to see, you know, all the city on the screen. But the film was loosely based on Joseph Conrad's novel, The Secret Agent. And that's not to be confused with Secret Agent, which I just talked about, and that's a, you know, a completely different film that Hitchcock did the same year. Very confusing. Maybe that's what sparked his idea to get Conrad's novel. I don't know. Charles Bennett was back once again to adapt this one. Among the changes made between the book and film were changing the nationality of the villains to be more ambiguous. They even changed one of the characters' names from Adolf due to the connotation at the time. Even though it's never made explicit, many believe the force behind the bombing plot is actually Nazi Germany. And to be clear, yes, the character was named Adolf in the book, but the book took place well before things started to pick up for World War II. So, I don't think that was Conrad's initial you know, motivation within the book. But, I digress. Hitchcock wanted Donat to return, but he wasn't available. There are conflicting stories as to why he wasn't available. One report said that it was due to his chronic asthma, but Hitchcock would later say that it was because Alexander Jordan refused to release Donat from his contract with him. Either way, he couldn't get Donat. John Loder was ultimately cast as the lead, and Hitchcock wasn't happy about it. He claimed, The actor we got wasn't suitable, and I was forced to rewrite the dialogue during the shooting. So this one's not starting off on the right foot exactly, but... The film would run into several issues, including... 
several nights of rain interrupting filming. It was said it poured for three days, and instead of when they should have been filming, they were huddled under storefronts to try to keep dry. Ivor Montague, who was the man who had cut Lodger into a watchable state, who I believe had been working with Hitchcock at Gaumont British up to this point, left due to arguments over excessive expenditures. And then we had lead actress Sylvia Sidney, who got into an argument over adding words into a scene that Hitchcock wanted to be silent, which was said that the argument brought her to tears. However, this one had a bit of a happy ending, because once she saw the final product, she called it an act of genius. So let's go ahead and set this one up. Sabotage, based on the book Secret Agent, not to be confused with Hitchcock's previous film, Secret Agent, and not to be confused with the film we'll be covering the next episode, Saboteur. So, so got all that? <laughs> anyway, it's Sabotage. It came out in 1936 and is a smooth 77 minutes long. And the synopsis reads, Carl Anton Verloc and his wife own a small cinema in a quiet London suburb, where they live seemingly happily. But Mrs. Verloc does not know that her husband has a secret that will affect their relationship and threaten her teenage brother's life. Very dire-sounding synopsis there. This, again, has a lot of going back and forth with spy stuff. It really, do- it really does. That's the whole driving force of the plot. You know, it starts off with a generator being sabotaged in a movie theater, losing its power, and it begins with this cool scene of an argument about they want to get their money back because the power's out, and the movie theater says, oh, sorry, we can't do that, we don't have the money to do that, and it leads to this greengrocer who is set up outside the cinema to come in and kind of argue back and forth. But that's, I think all these films start, that we've covered tonight, in a very detached scene from the rest of the film, even though it has a lot to do with what's going to drive the film forward. Sabotage has maybe the most bleak moment of any of the Hitchcock films I've covered so far. But other than, you know, the bleak moments in this film, the couple of darker moments, and the ending, this film is has a pretty light tone. It's not as tense and stressful. Okay, let me back that up. The entirety of the film is not as tense and stressful as, you know, say the 39 Steps, because those are going along at very fast pace. This is going back to seeing the streets of London, you're getting some day-to-day type stuff going on, and a day in the lives and all this. There are tense moments, to be sure, and, you know, pretty, pretty tense moments when we get there, but I'm just saying there's a lot of levity in a lot of the film. I really like a scene between, speaking of the levity, um, I really like a scene between a woman wanting a refund for a bird and the bird shop owner. It's pretty funny, and... It really helps to kind of establish the world we're living in and makes it feel lived in. So yeah, the scene didn't necessarily need to happen, but it's a good scene in the end. So I think the ending here, I'm not going to get into specifics again, has echoes of what we saw in Blackmail. I think there are certain themes that we saw in Blackmail that play into the ending here. And yeah, I think I think Hitchcock was going for a similar type of outcome, and really, I think that outcome or that kind of ending would be repeated a lot in his films, and not just his endings, but just the main themes throughout. 
As I mentioned earlier, the film does get very dark, and a lot of it I think is escalated by a character's failure in the opening of the film. You get this feeling that this character is in over his head, but it's almost too late to pull out. What starts out as good intentions end up having some pretty dire consequences. Now, there is an infamous scene in this movie, and it caused quite the uproar at the time. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit. So, Hitchcock actually criticizes this scene himself because he thought it kind of released the tension too early, and he thought it kind of went a little too far. And I can honestly see that, especially for the time. You know, it's what we have without getting into any spoilers. There's a scene on a bus, and there's this very tense sequence of scenes that lead up to it. There is a lot of film left after, you know, the suspense is released, but it's almost like Hitchcock has to invent another sequence of suspense afterwards, which that one's not as gripping, even though I do like parts of how the film ends. The aforementioned sequence, again, caused an uproar amongst British film critics. Many said Hitchcock went way too far, and I think it really kind of put people on edge in London in general and in England, especially with what's going on with, you know, war in Europe ramping up. I don't think it was the right film for the right time over there. And I think the scene we talked about really led to a lot of this. I think, <laughs> I think that scene is the infamous part of this movie that caused it to fail. It did, however, find an audience in the U.S., so it really was doing the job that Gaumont British wanted as far as pulling in American audiences, but it didn't do so well at home. My thoughts overall to kind of close out Sabotage is it's a pretty good movie. I think it's a solid film. I don't have as much a problem with the infamous scene as people of the time did, and that's understandably so. I don't think anyone will really have too hard of a time with that scene. You know, it's nothing graphic or anything like we'd see today. But it is a good piece of tense filmmaking, and I think what happens afterwards, while it's not as gripping, it still has some good moments. So, overall, I think Sabotage manages to stick the landing that it was going for, and unfortunately that didn't get recognized at the time. This is going to be probably, I don't know if it's a must-watch for Hitchcock fans, but it's one you're probably going to want to check out. For everyone else, I would say this is a mild recommendation, you know, if you're, if you want to go through Hitchcock's filmography and see a lot of the films, this does fit into that thriller category in places, and I think it's worth checking out, but definitely on the lower end of the spectrum of the films I've seen so far. Now, the failure of Sabotage commercially only worsened the financial status of Gaumont British. The studio closed shortly after Sabotage's filming. Balkan and Montague parted ways with Hitchcock, and Hitchcock would return to Gainsborough, where he started. Now we'll learn more about what happens next with Hitchcock on part three of this series, and I'm really excited to get into this next grouping of films. I'll be covering The Lady Vanishes, Rebecca, and Saboteur. So if you want to follow along at home, those are the ones you'll need to check out. And we're going to be going into, to give you a little teaser, into Hitchcock's 
eventual move to the U.S. and getting in with his first round of U.S. films. So that'll be a pretty exciting episode. I think we're going to cover some good material. And I want to thank everyone for listening and all those who listen to the show regularly. I really appreciate it and appreciate you checking out the podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would tell your friends as well if you're enjoying the podcast or leave a review on the on the podcast service of your choosing. As far as the plugs, you can follow the podcast over on at Screaming Ages on Twitter. There's also the Facebook group, Screaming Through the Ages, over there. The show's website, which, if you haven't checked out, I did add a new section to the website for a blog. And so far, all I've released over there are the May new horror releases. So it gives kind of a rundown of everything horror-related that I thought was interesting that's coming out in May. And I look to put some reviews on there of maybe some physical media or things like that in the future. So check that out if you're interested. Speaking of the website, you know, all the episodes are also housed over there. And the podcast actually has a voicemail now. I'm setting this up for a project I'm going to be working on for later this year that some of you probably already know about. But... If you ever did want to call in and leave a voicemail for the show or any of the topics we're going over, that voicemail is 740-297-6556. And that'll be in the show notes in case you ever do want to call in. You can also email the show at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. With all that being said, I think that is a wrap on Alfred Hitchcock The Early Years Part 2. So keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs> <laughs>